Hello, and welcome back to You Say You Want a Revolutionary. Some housekeeping business here, first of all. We have our Patreon page set up. Feel free to check that out, search it up there, and uh, we will be there if you have the ability. Donate a dollar. We uh, have a couple donations on there already, and we'd like to thank those individuals. One individual I want to give a shout-out here to is Mr. August McDonald. Thank you very much for your support, August. And as per usual, don't forget to subscribe and hit like. Leave a little comment and a review. Four or five stars only. Two or three and we will send people to break your kneecaps. Won't be pleasant and I don't enjoy going to jail. So, just kidding, just kidding, of course. Um, I do want to take this time to say thank you to anybody who is listening to this and anybody who has clicked subscribe already for something I initially thought up just as a way to convey information to some of my students. This has been doing relatively well. Uh, we are over 1,000 listeners at this point. And as I was recording this in advance to me teaching the class where I would actually use these, none of those 1,000 listeners are my students. So, thanks. Thank you very much. You can also feel free to follow us on Facebook. Uh, I don't really do too much with that uh, piece of social media, but it will give updates on episodes and things like that, as well as Twitter. You can search us out. Of course, you say you want a revolutionary. Now, on to the show. What don't they vote? All right, Mr. W.E.B. Du Bois. Now, a couple quick notes here. I am Canadian who has taken uh, French in school all the way from grade 4 until grade 13, back when there was a grade 13. So every time I see this name, I want to say Dubois. I'm not sure why it's Du Bois and not Dubois, like Blanche Dubois. Um, but that's what it is, so I will say Du Bois. Being a Canadian, I, of course here Du Bois, and I want to say for Du Bois. If you're not Canadian, that might not mean too much for you, but in uh, small-town Ontario speak, Du Bois is like your team or your crew, so that's kind of what I keep thinking every time I hear this, and I want to say for Du Bois, because that's a phrase that, you know, your girlfriend makes you want to, want to wants to go out on a Saturday night, and you're like, babe, Saturday, it's for Du Bois. You know, ridiculous, but Watch Letterkenny if you don't know what I'm talking about here. That'll help you out a little. W.E.B. Du Bois was born February 23rd, 1868, in a place called uh, Great Barrington. That's in Massachusetts. His mom is part of a really small free black community in Great Barrington's. Her family's pretty well established as landowners in the community. She is from Dutch, African, and English ancestors. Du Bois' maternal great, let's see if I have this right, great great grandfather. It sounds Okay, that sounds right. Was a slave taken from Africa, from West Africa, around 1730. Now, this guy had uh, been owned by a Dutch colonist, but he served in the American Revolutionary War, and he may have won his freedom there. Historical record is spotty at best there. On his dad's side, his great-grandfather was James Du Bois of Poughkeepsie in New York, who was French-American and had several children with a slave woman. Um, Massachusetts at the time is a pretty progressive place by comparison to a lot of places further south. And he was pretty well, uh, Du Bois was pretty well supported by the, by the community. He went to a mixed ethnicity, mixed race school. He was 
um, very well supported by his local church. And in fact, when he decided to go off to college, the first congressional church of Barrington paid for his tuition. He went to university in Tennessee from 1885 to 1888, and this is going to be an eye-opener because he's not in Massachusetts anymore. He's in Tennessee. This is the time of Jim Crow laws in the South, uh, Reconstruction, and what you've got is just bald-faced, open bigotry, suppression of black voting, lynchings were at an all-time high, and he received a bachelor's degree from Fisk, and then he attended Harvard. Harvard didn't, uh, didn't actually accept any of his credit courses from Fisk because Fisk is a predominantly African-American university in the South. He was the student of a guy who is relatively well-known, William James, at Harvard. He got his second bachelor's degree at Harvard, uh, graduated in the top 25% of his class, and got a scholarship to attend grad school. He also attended the University of Berlin in Germany. He completed his grad school studies when he got back from Berlin, and in 1895, he is the first African-American to earn a PhD from Harvard. And one of his quotes was that, I am in Harvard, but I am not of Harvard, because being the one of the few black people that were going to Harvard at the time, he was not even allowed to live at a residence because he's a black man. Now, on graduating with his doctorate, he famously said, quote, the pleasure, I assure you, was Harvard's, which is a pretty solid history burn there. I don't know if that's actually 100% verified. I can't find any sources for that that I would respect. So take that one with a grain of salt. And either way, it's a pretty solid burn. He then accepted a one-year research job for the University of Pennsylvania as an assistant in sociology. He did, he did field research. He went out, visited people, and, and took down information on them. He wrote a book in 1899 called The Philadelphia Negro, which summarizes kind of all of the stuff that he was working on as he was doing his uh, sociology field work. And what this book did was very interesting. It actually went around to the places in Philadelphia at the time and took all kinds of stats. How large was your family? How educated is your family? What's your median income? What do you guys do? What are your off times? All kinds of questions. And when he compiled this, what he found was a real undermining of the stereotypes that had existed in North America of how black people were living their lives at the time. He found that although all of the people that he talked to were, quote, free, they had been and still were excluded from all kinds of areas in life that were really necessary for them to survive and to thrive. They were traditionally working in the service industry because uh, black people were not allowed in the majority of the trades that were dominating this better paid trade work. Uh, services paid less, right? So many of these people were, were less well off. They couldn't afford higher education for their children. So their kids were less educated than their white contemporaries and more likely to be worse off financially. More poverty led to more joblessness. More joblessness led to more criminality, which then justified white people's stereotypes of black people at the time. One of the quotes in that book that I like was, quote, We are Negroes, members of a vast historic race that from the very dawn of creation has slept, but half awakening in the dark forests of its African fatherland. I just like the sound of that. Most of the other African-American um, activists at the time, guys like Booker T. Washington, were pretty well established already. And one of Washington's opinions was that black Americans, especially in the South, should sort of by necessity submit to the segregation that did exist there as long as the means by which they could actually advance were being given by the government. They could get an education and they could have their safety maintained by the state governments. Kind of agreed with that a little bit at first. And then 
was presented with the case of Sam Hose, and he was presented with this in a really horrible way. While walking down the street one day, he looked into the window and he saw burnt up bones that were labeled as a man's knuckles in this big storefront display. Turns out that Sam Hose was a young man who was tortured and burned and hung by a mob of like 2,000 white people after killing a white man in self-defense. Hose had a bunch of his body parts cut off before and after being burned alive, and those were the knuckles that he was, that was the body part he was looking at in the storefront display. Coming from Massachusetts, he looked at this and he was stunned and disgusted and resolved kind of right there that, this is the quote, one could not be a calm, cool, and detached scientist while Negroes were lynched, murdered, and starved. And he realized that you can't just sit there and say, yeah, we'll accept this segregation, we'll accept this treatment as long as you're providing for our education and our safety, because the latter two things were not being provided for. In 1903, he's going to produce his greatest work, what's going to be considered probably his most famous work, at least, The Souls of Black Folk. And it's as relevant today, now, as it was the day that it was published. It's kind of an essential read if you want to understand the history of race in the United States. In it, he is going to argue that the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line. Let's take a look at some of the ideas that you would find in this book. Now, if you're gonna ask me what race means, I, I kind of have an understanding of it in a vague sense. And that's not just me as an individual, that's everybody in our society, right? If I'm arrested by the police, they're gonna say that they're gonna have a white male or they're gonna have a Caucasian male in custody. This term is really, really old and really, really made up, right? A guy named Christopher Muneer made it up in the 1700s. His idea was that the Caucasus Mountains, right around Russia, were the place that white people originated from, so we'll call them all Caucasians. That's where it comes from, as weird as that is. That might strike you as really odd, but here's the thing. The term race has always meant different things in different times. It has never had a concrete definition. In, to give a couple examples of this, in 1921, a guy named McManus wrote a book called A History of the Irish Race. Irish is no longer considered to be a race in the modern world. There were all kinds of discussions in newspaper articles at the turn of the century, 1900-ish, about the influx of members of the Italian race into northern cities like New York and Boston, because this was, they felt, going to be a problem of assimilation and going to be difficult for them to assimilate. Italian is no longer considered a race. Nobody says, you know, I'm a member of the Italian race. Cops don't say, you know, the, the man in custody is a member of the Italian race. In fact, the use of the terms white and black, as though these were two monolithic groups of individuals, didn't even emerge in history very often until the institution of slavery in the South. What Du Bois is talking about here is that race is a social construct. Race is made up at a particular time in a particular place to suit a particular need. The term white and whiteness, Du Bois argues, only develops common parlance, only becomes part of common parlance in the South because it gave an advantage to those people that were born white. Even though they may have been poor and not slave owners, it gave the feeling that they were superior. It was an easy way that rich white people managed to convince poor white people that their actual problem in life isn't a system of slavery, uh, isn't an unjust economic system. The real problem is non-white people. But don't worry, you are uh, better than these people, the argument would go. Du Bois argues that this conveyed on the poor white population the, quote, this is his quote, the public and psychological wage of whiteness. 
But this, this idea is important. This idea is that we make up our definition of race based on the power structure that exists at the time. And after we do that, society uses a series of tools to confirm that our made-up definition of race is correct. Back in the South, for example, they had what they called the one-drop rule. In some states, you were considered to be legally black if you had one ancestor of African heritage. And because this is the South, you could therefore be enslaved. Here's an example. Thomas Jefferson, you know Thomas Jefferson, had uh, about six kids, I think it is, with a slave that he owned named Sally Hemings. Now, here's the weird part about Sally Hemings. Sally Sally Hemings had three white grandparents and one grandparent of African descent. In the South, that made her a black person. Her children with Thomas Jefferson, uh, with, follow, with seven white grandparents out of eight were born into slavery. Now, Thomas Jefferson let two of them escape, and the other, out of the other four, three of them entered society later in life as white people. But in the South at the time, they were considered black. But just because race is a social construct uh, doesn't mean that it is meaningless. In fact, it means the opposite. It is extremely meaningful because societies give it meaning. We as human beings believe that race is meaningful. Just like Franz Fanon's uh, later going to argue, the idea of race is made up by the racist society to vindicate and validate their racism. And if you're thinking this is just kind of one historical anomaly that doesn't necessarily exist anymore, like, you're wrong. Look at Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods' dad is of totally mixed ancestry, right? His mom is Thai. But because he looks the way he does in the United States, the U.S. media labeled him as the first black man to win the U.S. Masters. Barack Obama, the first black president. It's almost like when people are using these labels, people are just using it as a descriptor. But oftentimes in North American society, it does seem like a reminder that If you didn't do these phenomenal things, our society would still consider you and treat you as a black man and treat you as such. This leads to a phenomenon that Du Bois calls double consciousness, which Du Bois describes as the sensation of always looking at yourself through the eyes of others, or always looking at events in your society through two sets of eyes. He doesn't mention it specifically in this book, but it is a common thread throughout all of his his works, that whatever happens... The black person, or even any person of any minority group, sees themselves as both an American and a minority person, in this case a black person. Quote, one ever feels his two-ness, an American, a Negro, two souls, two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings. Right, this is a theme that's going to be taken up uh, regarding feminism, around intersectionality, but it is extremely destructive. Du Bois argues that people want to be fully defined as human beings and be able to fully define themselves. It's something important to our autonomy. You want to be a fully conscious individual and able to make your own choices. But due to this double consciousness, the black person is always aware and influenced by society's opinion of them. He or she is always kind of cognizant of the fact that they're black and everything will affect them differently. This always reminds me of a friend that I grew up with, a person of color, only uh, one generation Uh, removed from his parents who came from a different country. I remember one time when he and his mom were discussing or arguing over what he was going to take in school, and I came in to grab him to go out somewhere, probably to go play pool or to go to a bar or something ridiculous. We were probably close to 19, so that's probably okay here in Canada. But I remember her listing the courses that he wanted to take that she didn't think were good choices, right? And she looked at me totally genuinely and asked, what do the white people think of this? And I, of course thought the question was hilarious, right? Being an idiot in 19 at the time, uh, I think I totally deadpanned some sort of answer that 
you know, I wasn't totally sure, but I'd ask around and maybe even bring it up at the next, you know, white people meeting. And she just looked at me sort of puzzled and probably kind of decided right there that I was an idiot and wandered away. But uh, later, the whole incident kind of made me think because this woman, very successful, very progressive woman, she's educated, she's hardworking, right, whatever. She made choices for her family and herself based on, at least in some part, in some way, what white people might think of the choice, right? I have never once made a choice or thought to myself, hey, I wonder what uh, a black person, a brown person, a person of color would think of my choice. But she understood. She got it. She understood that the choices that she made would be judged in two different ways. She'd be judged as a Canadian parent and a not-white Canadian parent. Double consciousness. Another big idea you could take from Du Bois is the concept of racial formation theory. I'll give you a bit of a textbook definition here. I guess it would be sort of like the process through which social, political, and economic forces would influence a society to define racial categories and what people what people would fit in those racial categories. But one of the big ideas is that these racist ideas are self-perpetuating. Remember the earlier work when you wrote The Philadelphia Negro? We talked about it a little bit there. Because black men were not allowed to get well-paying jobs at the time, unionized jobs, trade jobs, were virtually impossible. It wasn't going to happen. They worked more in the service industry, which paid less, and they had higher unemployment rates because, you know, duh, half the jobs are unavailable to them. This leads to more poverty, more criminality, which then was used by racist white people to justify the beliefs that they already had. Like lowered funding to one school district over another, and then people would turn around and say, look at the poor results that this group is getting out of the education system. Harvard's not submitting people back in the day, people of color, to their school, and then people would turn around and say, look, it's all white people graduating from Harvard. It's self-perpetuating. One of the very concrete things that Du Bois did was in 1909 found or co-found the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Color People. This is an organization that is still vital to this day, does all kinds of important work to this day. For over 100 years, this group is going to fight against lynching, racist laws, uh, school segregation. It's going to fight against voter suppression laws around the United States. They were there during Board versus the Brown of Education, the Montgomery Bus Boycott, the March on Washington, Civil Rights Act. They're going to be extremely influential as a voice for civil rights around North America. Now, maybe I hear some of you saying this is all 100 years ago sort of stuff. What relevance is this in today's world? Well, many sociologists will say that the same struggles continue to exist today. In fact, they might be a little even more insidious and more difficult to combat because today we have racism without racists. Openly racist views are not acceptable in society, so discrimination is much more hidden. Right. A study from September 2017 by uh, Prosperity Now and the Institute for Policy Studies found that the median wealth of white families in the United States is about $116,000, whereas the median uh, wealth of black families is around $1,700 and $2,000 for Latino families. One could argue, of course, like some people you know probably would, that racism is illegal. So it's not the result of racism, it's the result of some other thing. But most sociologists and even economists would argue that because wealth builds up over generations, white families in the study have had more access to past generations' wealth than either the black or Latino families, and have greater access to educational and other social services. They've had them for generations. Today, because of greater difficulties that are present in the world for people earning less income, this difference in median wealth is actually set to increase in the United States. Combine this with 
poor funding for public education, increased rates of incarceration for people of color, lack of access to opportunity, and you have a similar situation to that which was described in the Philadelphia Negro by Du Bois. It's a hundred years ago, and it's very similar. People are held back by a society that they exist in, not due to any inherent flaw in their racial grouping. He continued to work throughout his whole life. He turned towards socialism later in life, seeing it as a more likely way to advance the racial equality that he was fighting for than the current system of capitalism that had existed in the United States. He attended the first meeting of the UN in 1945 in order to remind the members that colonialism around the world was undemocratic and a main cause of world conflict. And unfortunately, outside of a few countries, he received extremely little support and his motion wasn't included in the UN Charter. During the Cold War, Du Bois lost support a little bit due to his socialist sympathies, and uh, the NAACP tried to distance itself from communism. However, he refused to publicly renounce socialism, and he eventually parted ways with the NAACP amicably because he didn't want to become a distraction to what they were attempting to do, which was probably for the best because it came to light later on that the FBI had started investigating him in 1942 and were already keeping all kinds of information on his comings and goings. When Du Bois started the Peace Information Center, this group designed to work towards the banning of nuclear weapons, the Justice Department in the United States indicted him as working as an agent for a foreign government. Historian Manning Maribel described it as a ruthless, quote, political assassination. The case fell apart eventually, but because they didn't have enough evidence, but he had already lined up all kinds of support from some pretty uh, pretty next-level people. He had Langston Hughes, who was willing to testify on his behalf, and Albert Einstein. So when the Justice Department would have called him to the stand, that would have been uh, really funny, I think. Du Bois continued to believe that capitalism is the primary culprit responsible for the subjugation of colored people around the world, right? He recognized the faults in the Soviet Union, didn't like the communism of the USSR, but continued to uphold socialism and communism as the solution to possibly, uh, as a possible solution to all kinds of racist problems. In 1957, he had been invited to Ghana to celebrate their independence, but he actually couldn't go because the U.S. government had taken his passport. Now, he was uh, really incensed at the U.S. government in 1961 because the U.S. government required communists to register with the federal government. To demonstrate his outrage, he joined the Communist Party at the age of 93. Around this time, he wrote, I believe in communism. I mean, by communism, a planned way of life in the production of wealth and work designed for building a state whose object is the highest welfare of its people and not merely the profit of a part. He eventually did travel to Ghana once he got his, pa once he got his passport back. And while there, um, the U.S. government refused to renew his passport. So he wasn't able to leave. In 1963, he became a citizen of Ghana and he passed away two years later uh, at the age of 95. Over the course of his entire life, Du Bois was a spokesperson for full and equal rights in like every aspect of existence, dedicated his whole life to kind of fulfilling that goal or attempting to. And the principles of his activism, his published works, and his academics all remain as relevant today as they were the day they were created. And although they differ on many ideas, Dr. Cornell West once expressed that Du Bois is probably the most important intellectual of the 20th century. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. What's up, my folks?